are in Galatians chapter 2, if you would like to turn there this morning. Galatians in the New Testament chapter 2. I need to say something to you that you perhaps have heard before, but sometimes have difficulty putting into practice. You need to just speak to your own heart here for a moment and tell yourself once again, I am not defined by my sins. I am not defined by my failures. I am not defined by my past. I am not the man I used to be. And praise God in heaven, I am not yet the man I am going to be. But in the meantime, we walk by His grace, His strength, His power, because our resources are so limited. But know this. Wherever you are at, in whatever season of life you are at, you must never allow the enemy to drag you into that place where you feel unworthy and inefficient and, and just a moral failure coming and going. These lies are from the pit of hell. You are a child of God. He is going to use you for his glory till the day he takes you home. He has every single one of our days numbered. I have no fear of death. We should not fear anything in life. My God is sufficient. That's what he told Paul in all of his, his issues that he faced, personal and otherwise, and health-wise. But know this, don't let Satan define you by your past, your sins, or your failures. These things make us the people, in part who we are today, a grateful people, a humble people, but we're all still uh, very much a work under progress, aren't we? So we live by grace. We're kept by grace. Be gracious with one another. It's easy to do that before you get married. It's more important to do that after you've been married 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Keep on doing that. Because we are a work under progress. How can I be a better person than I am now? By simply accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It is the simple gospel that Paul was preaching to these half dozen or so churches scattered throughout south central what is today Turkey. He would just was an itinerant preacher everywhere he went. He took Jesus with him and looked for God to open up doors of opportunity to talk to people, whether one-on-one -on -one, whether he was in a busy marketplace, a huge city, or simply on the road. I believe that all of God's children desire greatly to please him and to be effective in this life for his purposes. And that's what this letter is all about. On Paul's first missionary journey, he had traveled through that part of the, of the world and established churches, just a handful of believers here and there, one, two, five, ten, just anybody who would accept Jesus Christ. But like you could expect Satan to do, as soon as Paul left, Satan sent in some people to try to undermine the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel is simply this, Jesus, it is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for all of our past, all of our dysfunctionality, all of our sins, doubts, fears, and failures. He died for it all. And the moment we said, Jesus, be my Lord and Savior and forgive me my sins, he did. All of that past was washed away. But Paul's critics often wanted to 
drag his name once again through the mud. Maybe you've had that experience before where people, while you let go of your past, other people aren't so quick to be gracious. And they'll remind you of, you? You're a Christian? You? You're a holy roller? You? You're born again? You? thought Satan would get saved before you. I am not who I used to be by the grace of God, but I will not allow my sins, my fears, my doubts, my failures of the past define me. Let that go. If Satan says you are a failure, then say, yep, that's who I used to be. I still am less than perfect, but Jesus is making me better every day. I'm on a journey. We're not there yet, but I'm getting there. I win, you lose. Take that. Satan. He doesn't win in this life. They had questioned Paul's credentials. Well, he's kind of a Johnny come lately. He wasn't really one of the original 12. He's not a real apostle. He's kind of, you know, he has, he's not seminary trained. Did you know that he's not even a fisherman? We know Jesus calls fishermen. He calls tax collectors. He calls political zealots, but he doesn't call Jewish rabbis. No, that's not possible. Can God use you for his glory? Doesn't mean you need to go to Bible college or seminary. I, get, I tire of fielding those questions sometimes. Well, Pastor Jim, I feel that God's called me into ministry, and I go, praise the Lord. Well, what Bible college do I go to? Run as far as you can in the opposite direction. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. So if you want to swell head and deal with pride your whole life, yeah, get an education. Go for it. Spend a lot of money that you don't have for things that God has not called you to. Let me ask you something. Is this enough? Yes. Is God enough? Is the filling of His Holy Spirit sufficient to use you in any ministry that He's called you to? Where God guides, God provides. And he, those spiritual resources are yours. You will not find them in a seminary. You cannot find them in a Bible college. But people think, well, a seminary will make me a pastor or a counselor or a teacher. No, it won't. It'll make you smart, proud, and arrogant if you let it appeal to your flesh. Now, if, on the other hand, God calls you there, like he did, Paul, there's room for Educated people within, for certainly, but it's not education that'll get you any closer to God. I was mistaken about that earlier on in my career. I thought, well, if I'm going to be a pastor, I've got to go to seminary. Except that my pastor, Chuck Smith, used to make fun of seminary and call it cemetery. It's where people go to spiritually die and shrivel up. And he mocked it, but one day when I was telling him about God's call on my life, he said, well, God's called you to go to seminary. And I said, I've heard you mock it from the pulpit. Why would I want to go there? He says, because for every group of 12 fishermen and disciples and zealots, there's always an Apostle Paul. You're it. I didn't understand it at the time. In fact, in some senses, I must be, confess I kind of resented it. Well, none of those other guys, those Calvary Chapel pastors, none of them has to go to seminary. Why do I? Why do I have to go and, and spend a lot of money that, in fact, a pagan 
you may not know this, an unbeliever can go to any seminary in the United States of America and make straight A's. Did you know that? It's a place where academics are made, not pastors. Only God can make a pastor. You can learn all sorts of schools of psychology and hope to be a, an effective counselor, but the methods of the world are not the methods of God. In school, you learn about historic schemes of psychology, but they change. The popular model of psychology changes every 20 years. The Bible doesn't change. My God does not change at all. His Word is immutable. If you think that you need something else besides God's Word to counsel people, you're already so messed up, you don't belong in the ministry yet. You've got to learn that God is sufficient. His Word is perfect. It's all you need. That and the filling of His Holy Spirit. That's the greatest preparation you can. But people would look down upon Paul. Well, you're not seminary trained. You weren't an original disciple. In fact, Paul, didn't you used to persecute the church? Everybody, anybody ever brought up your past? Aren't you the guy or the gal who used to mock Christianity and make fun of people that would read their Bible? And weren't you that guy, that gal? Yeah but my sins do not define me. That may have been who I was. It is not who I am, nor who I will be by the grace of God. So hang on to that. You're a child of God. Don't let anybody look upon you as being spiritually inferior in any way, shape, or form. You've been born again by God. So Paul here not only establishes his credentials uh, in this short letter to these precious churches, but reminds them, I'm called by God. I didn't think this up myself. This was a call of God upon my life. I had to go, even if nobody went with me. So as proof of his calling and apostleship, and Paul in chapter 2 says, I was first of all accepted by the apostles in Jerusalem. They saw me as a legitimate apostle. They gave me the hand of fellowship and said, great, God's called you to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And you also see his authority when in chapter 2 and verse 11, he has to rebuke Peter. That takes some guts. It's one thing to rebuke a pastor. It's a whole other thing to rebuke Peter, the fisherman one of those that was closest to Jesus Christ, the guy who at the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw Jesus changed, the guy who heard the voice of, of God. You're going to rebuke Peter? Hmm. Look at verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid, hmm, key word, he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Oh, Paul has apostolic authority, all right, but he's very judicious in its use. Sometimes he is a very, very gentle, caring, and loving shepherd to the people. He becomes all things to all people so that by the grace of God, some might be saved. But there is a unique time and place for a pastor 
to correct a pastor. That's generally not the job of sheep. Now, you can always find fault with your shepherd, as they could find fault with Paul, with Peter, the other apostles. But it is not generally the sheep that should chastise the pastor. It should be another pastor who understands exactly who he is, what he's called to do. But when it says here that Peter was afraid in verse 12, as these people came from James, James, of course, was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ and the head of the church in Jerusalem. When they, these folks came as emissaries, he used to eat with the Gentiles, Peter did. You know, he'd have bacon, he'd have Jimmy Dean pork sausage, every, you know, it didn't matter. He's not under the law anymore, and Peter knew that, so he would fellowship with the Gentiles. The picture seems to be every time the church got together, they'd have a potluck. They'd always close it out with communion, remembering the Lord Jesus Christ and what this body and blood represented in those elements. But they would have a church potluck and build relationships there. If you want to build relationships in this church, get involved. Eat with each other. Get in each other's lives. Go to home fellowships. Come to other activities that are going on. Invite somebody out to lunch after church. You don't have to be alone. The enemy wants to keep you alone and hide behind some excuse, well, I'm really kind of an introvert. We can lay hands on you and pray for you. You can outgrow that. To say you're an introvert means I prefer to do things my way and don't want to associate with people that don't do it my way. Hmm. Don't use the excuse, I'm an introvert. No, you're not. You're a child of God. That's who you are. Remember that. Peter gives in to fear. He's not typically a man, and yet at different times in his life, you do see him afraid. A storm blows up over the Lake of Galilee, and Jesus isn't in the boat with them. And they're in the middle of the, of the lake, and a storm blows up. It's, it's way past midnight. Jesus isn't with them until, until finally they see Jesus walking on the water to them and about to pass up the boat. And it says Peter and the other guys were afraid, thinking that they were seeing a ghost. Hmm. Fear can creep into the most noble heart if that heart is unprepared. There was a previous storm where you'll remember Jesus was in the back of the boat with him, asleep on a cushion. He's resting in the Lord in every sense of the word. But the storm blows up and it swamps the boat, and Jesus is sleeping through it all. Oh, to sleep so soundly, huh? Wouldn't that be wonderful? There are some people who can sleep through anything. We used to have a lady in the church who could, could sleep at the drive-up window at her bank. She'd take power naps, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. I'm going, how do you do that? That's a gift as far as I'm concerned. Sometimes we, we can lay there in our bed for hours waiting, waiting to fall asleep. Resting in the Lord. Peter and the disciples went to Jesus in the back of the boat, woke him up and said, Don't you care that we're perishing? That's blasphemy. When you say to Jesus... Don't you care? That says you know nothing about Jesus. Of course he cares. As a shepherd cares for his sheep, he lays down his life for his sheep. Of course he cares. Don't ever let Satan prompt you to blaspheme because of personal fear or insecurity 
Well, Jesus, don't you care that I'm sick or financially set back? Don't you care that I have to go to the doctor? Don't, don't you care that I have cancer? Don't you care? That's blasphemy. Of course he cares. He loves you. What he's allowed you to go through is, listen carefully, a test of your faith. It's easy to say you have faith. What's it look like when you're in the emergency room awaiting a doctor? What's your faith look like when you get a diagnosis from your family physician that you didn't want to hear? Some of us are so afraid, we don't go to doctors thinking that somehow or another ignorance is bliss, that you're somehow or another, I don't need to see doctors. When you say, oh, I'm going to stand in faith in Christ Jesus, when in fact the real issue is you're afraid of hearing something the doctor might say. So you stay away from doctors and hide behind it as some kind of pseudo-faith. Maybe that doctor needs your witness, your testimony. Maybe somebody in his office needs Jesus. You ever think about that? You ever think about maybe it's not about you at all? Maybe it's about somebody else who's watching you go through the things that you go through. They want to see Jesus. The world is desperate to see the reality of our Christianity. But when we, like Peter, cave in to peer pressure and fear and doubt and insecurity, the reality of our faith is what shows up, and there is room for improvement When I say fear, I'm talking to people in the room that are struggling with that. Fear can take a wide variety of forms, but Satan wants to use it to keep you away from God. And the test that God is allowing you to go through is meant to bring you closer to Him, not further away. But some of us don't pray. Some of us don't go to doctors. We like to appear spiritual, so we just say, oh, I'm trusting God. Are you? Really? Or are you, in fact, walking in fear? I think going to the doctor is like getting an oil change on your car. It's not because something's wrong. It's because you don't want something to go wrong. It's called preventative maintenance. And if you haven't found it out yet, when you turn 70, you will find out how important it is to change the oil in your car and in this car. Preventive maintenance keeps me on my face before God, trusting in Him, reading His Word, praying and standing in faith. Am I afraid of going to the doctor and hearing the word cancer? Nope. Been there, done that. It's all part of life. This is life in a sinful, fallen world. No, there's nothing in my body that works like it used to 30 years ago. But I'd like to think I'm 30 years wiser than I used to be. I may have lost my, my strength but I want to be growing in my faith. Peter was afraid. It is, seems to be so out of character, but this is the essence here in verse 12 of something you and I call peer pressure. Have you ever been pressured by coworkers or other family members? Or you, you, for, you don't want to bring something up at the Thanksgiving family dinner because you know there's people there that just don't want to hear it. So you don't bring up Jesus. You don't insist on prayer before the meal because, you know, they may think you're like Johnny Good Two-Shoes or something, you know. Peter didn't want to look bad in their eyes, so he compromised. He wanted to appear more like these Judaizers and avoid any criticism that they may have taken back to Jerusalem 
and tell James. In other words, in this moment of time, he becomes a man-pleaser instead of a God-pleaser. Of course, that's never happened to you. We do it all the time. We are so concerned about what people think about us on Instagram or Facebook or any other social media. Oh, somebody's called me a name on the internet. I'm going to commit suicide. Really? Get a life. What is wrong with you? We shouldn't attach that much significance to anything that anybody thinks about us. What does Peter care about these Judaizers? Please God. Live to please God. Don't give in to that because it'll only force compromise in you and the church struggles with compromise today. But to walk in fear, everyone knows what it feels like when there's social pressure that pushes you towards compromise. But it always will. Social pressure always pushes you to compromise your Christian walk, your Christian values. You must pass that test. Stand firm. Well, if I mention the name of Jesus in the workplace, I'll get fired. Have you ever heard of the First Amendment? You have certain rights, whether in the workplace or not. You have to do your work, but don't shun the name of Jesus. He said, if you are embarrassed of me on earth, I'm going to be embarrassed when you stand before my Father in heaven. You want to stand up for Jesus? Don't, don't try to be a man, please. Don't be squishy in your beliefs. Stand firm. You're a man or a woman after God's own heart. You're saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you possess the same Holy Spirit that Jesus did when he raised the dead. You have that power. You have that authority. Satan doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to use that. But that is who you are in Christ Jesus. And Paul knew that. He said, I'm not the man I was. I'm not the man I'm going to be, but I am the man that I am by the call and will of God who has forgiven me and washed me clean. He's not going to be a man pleaser. I don't want to be a man pleaser. Compromise in this situation is not a good thing. Being inconsistent as a Christian only sends a bad message to everybody who's watching you. That you're a compromised Christian that's squishy in their beliefs and doesn't really stand their ground regarding the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It sends a bad message. It confuses other people that are looking to us for good Christian example. Compromise too, looks way too much like we're giving in to peer pressure. And ultimately, as, as uh, Paul says there in verse 13, it can come off as hypocrisy. You're, you say you're a man or woman of God. Why don't you act like it? You say you're a Christian, but you don't talk like it. You say that you trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord of life, but it doesn't look like that in the things that you engage in and how you talk and how you think, the things you watch on your computer. These things can stumble other Christians that are looking to you for a mature Christian example. So what do you do if you're caught up in compromise, sexually, morally, or otherwise? Repent. Repent. It starts with that. It requires humility, but don't let your pride get in the way. 
Confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It has to start there. God already knows that we have failed him. Why try to hide it or find an excuse to cover it up? Well, everybody does it. The children of God should act like the children of God, think like the children of God, look like the children of God. So, dearest friends, stand up for what you believe. Don't do a squishy Peter thing here and say, well, I don't want to stir up anything at work. I don't want to mention the name Jesus. People think I'm a Jesus freak. Well, you should wear that as a badge of honor. I'm a Jesus freak. You bet I'm a Jesus freak. So he continues in verse 12. Certain men came from James. Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, used to eat all sorts of things with them, Gentile food. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate themselves from the Gentiles, wanting to look more spiritual, wanting to look like he was, in fact, keeping the Jewish dietary laws. Why would he do that? Just because of peer pressure. Just because of peer pressure. He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, these Judaizers that were trying to bring people back under bondage to the law. Verse 13, the other Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy. That word stings, doesn't it? It's like salt on an open wound. It stings. Nobody wants to be called a hypocrite. But when you claim to be one thing and act like you're something else, that is the very definition of hypocrisy. It has its its roots, the Greek plays, where they would put on a mask and pretend to be something they were not. Today we call them actors and actresses. Even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas was thinking, well, if Peter's withdrawing fellowship from these Gentiles, maybe we do have to keep the law. Maybe we should just stick with kosher foods. Maybe we ought to stay away from the hot dogs and Jimmy Dean pork sausage and lobster shrimp and crab and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe we ought to just step away from... Here's the deal. We're all one in Christ Jesus. I don't care what you eat. If you're a vegetarian... You need prayer, that's for sure. We can pray for you about that. But, but don't force your views on anybody else. Some people in the congregation actually eat meat. And did you know this? It's not a sin. You are not more holy or a better Christian because you eat one way or another. You may be a better steward, but let me tell you, your diet doesn't make you more holy. It doesn't make you more spiritual. And that's what was going on here. And you think to yourself, it doesn't even make sense. Why would you think that keeping Jewish dietary, because it has the appearance of holiness. Ooh, I fast oh, how, so many days a week. How, you know, do you? Well, obviously then I'm your spiritual superior. You should fast because the Lord prompts you to fast, but not look down upon anybody else for not fasting. You do as God directs and they will do as God directs. But holiness has nothing to do with the food you eat. Jesus said, don't you guys understand? It's not what you put in your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. Verse 13 is interesting. I want to back up this for just a second. The old King James has the word dissimulation in here. It's, It's simply an old English word that means 
hypocrisy, which is what we have in our translation before us. But the original term came from sun and hypocrinomai, which means to act hypocritically in concert with other people. So Peter's influencing other people by his bad example. And even Barnabas, and you think, Barnabas? Barney is a rock. But you remember he was a Levitical priest from Cyprus, and there is a draw to come back to the law. The Jewish way of doing things, the Jewish dietary principles, the keeping of festivals and Sabbaths and things like that. Here's what we need to take away from this, though. Our poor example can influence other people to sin. You say, that's a pretty heavy burden, Pastor Jim. That's what it means to be salt and light in a sinful, fallen world. You be the man or woman that Christ has called you to be. Not perfect in your holiness, but looking to perfect that holiness in you daily by the work of the Holy Spirit. Getting others to pray for you about your sins and your weaknesses. Not trying to hide them or cover them up, although shame and embarrassment will drive you to that point. Satan doesn't want you to get help. He wants to keep you in bondage to the flesh. Barnabas was a rock and you're thinking he could be led astray. Peter's bad example led him to fall as well. People are looking. They need your good example. They don't need to hear cuss words come out of your mouth. They don't need to find trash and pornography on your computer. They don't need your wife or your husband telling other people what a wretch you are. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. But the Bible says if you can't say something nice about somebody, don't say nothing at all. Speak well of each other. Let only those things come out of your mouth that build up encourage, and edify. Be a good wife, a good husband. Build up your spouse. Send them off to work with a kiss on the cheek and a, and a prayer before you let go of their hand and, and ask that God bless them, use them for His glory. You be that man or woman of God. Guys, you love that little woman with all that is within you. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. I just made some of you really mad with that word submit. Why? Because you're in rebellion against God. That's why. The issue isn't with me. God said, submit. If you don't want to, that's between you and Him. But understand this, your rebellion carries a price. You can tear down your house with your own two hands if you want to. Only a foolish person would do that, according to Proverbs. So don't do that. Speak well of each other. Withdrawing from these poor Gentiles must have made them feel like spiritual zeros. Peter's withdrawing fellowship with them? What, are we not as good as the Jews? What's wrong with us? But we do that sometimes indiscreetly in church. Oh, you don't speak in tongues? Oh, you poor thing. I'm going to have to pray for you. Like you're spiritually inferior. Oh, you don't have this spiritual gift? You don't have that spiritual gift? Well, you're not really a child of God. How long have you been saved? Oh, you've only been saved for 10 years? Oh, I've been saved 50 or 60 or 100. We get into these things that prick the pride and make other people feel bad because of the uncomplimentary speech that comes out of our mouth. Say 
Only those things that build up, encourage, and edify. If you can't do this, then don't say anything. Am I clear? Just hold up your hand and say, you're clear. Okay. Now you know what's required of you. You know, it's a serious thing to be a Christian. It carries with it great responsibilities. People are watching you, and you are Christ's ambassador. You need to know who you are in Christ Jesus, which is what Paul is going to finish up this precious chapter with. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you know not. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? A public sin demands a public rebuke. If it's a private sin, then you go to the person privately. But if this is something that's done in front of the whole church, it needs to be publicly corrected. And that's what Paul has taken upon himself to do. He is a child of God. He knows who he is and who God has called him to be. He is, in fact, a legitimate apostle. But now the test is on the table. Will Paul take authority and do what God has prompted him to do to challenge Peter? And secondly, here's another test on the table. Will Peter receive it? You may be really good at dishing out criticism. How are you at receiving it? Most of us don't do that worth a rip. We find it easy to criticize others because there's plenty of fault to be found. We're all imperfect. Okay, put the shoe on the other foot. How do you respond when I have to correct you? Most people hate it. In my experience as a pastor, most people don't receive correction. Isn't that a shame? I have only their best interests at heart. I want them to flourish. I want them to do well as a Christian. I don't bring things to their attention to to embarrass or humiliate them, but to point out the need for change. I want to come alongside them. I want to pray with them. I want to encourage them. I want to point them in the right direction. But I got to tell you, somewhere in the neighborhood of 85 to 90% of Christians, born-again, spirit-filled Christians say, well, I didn't want to hear that, Pastor. It's not my job to tell you what you want to hear. It is my job to tell you what you must hear if you are going to walk faithfully with the Lord. But I have found most people just don't do it. When I was the praise and worship leader up here, something I did in this church for 30-plus years, 20 years before that, but sometimes I would tell the people, you know, sometimes just enjoy your freedom if you are not the chief worshiper, because everybody's looking at you for an example up here. If you're not worshiping, they can't worship. You're hindering them. If you don't have your hands raised, nobody in the congregation is going to raise their hands. If you don't allow a tear to come to your eyes, nobody else is. If you're not singing the songs with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you're hindering everybody else's. They're following your example, Peter. You're the one who's not worshiping. Then what in God's name are you doing in the worship band? The number one thing that you must possess is the ability to worship, and that means freedom. Who cares what people are thinking? Well, they may think, you know, I'm I'm a charismatic Catholic or something if if I raise my hands. Oh, give it a break. It's not about you. 
You should be a worshiper. If you are not a worshiper, you should not be in the band. Any more than you should be behind a pulpit as a pastor of a church if you are not gifted, called, or equipped to be a pastor and you don't want to be one. There's no difference. You must be a worshiper up here. The pastor must set the tone. He must strive with all that is within him to set the example for the flock because sheep follow shepherds. It's what they do. So you want to pick an, an honest shepherd who will love you enough to tell you what you need to hear rather than what you want to hear. Love sometimes has an edge to it. Sometimes lo love has, has, has a, a spanking stick to go with it. Sometimes there is a tough love as well as a time and a place to hug you, love you, encourage you. This is tough love when you see it played out between Paul and Peter. It's a tough job to do. Not everybody's up to the task. But I must tell you the things that you need to hear. He confronts them and he says in verse 14, when I saw that you guys were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, these dietary laws can't save you. The Jewish law never could. You're free in the gospel in, in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. The law can't save you. Good deeds can't save you. Diet can't save you. Only faith in Christ Jesus can save you. So he confronts Peter publicly. He says, here we are at an agape feast, and this must have been an awkward moment. This is an agape feast. This is a church fellowship. Peter, yo, how come you're standing over there with all of these Jewish guys when you used to fellowship with all of us in the congregation? How come you're separating yourselves? We can do that easily in our fellowships too. Well, I don't speak Spanish, so I'm going to stay over here. Well, I don't speak English, so I'm going to stay over here. And we segregate ourselves. Oh, I can't go to that special group in the church because I'm not a tattooed skateboarder with weird hair. We segregate each other when, in fact, we are the family of God. We're all in this thing together. You like tattoos? God bless you. Tat, tat up. That's fine. Ochre. You like, you like skateboarding and weird music? Fine. God bless you for it. You like to eat one thing or not another, that's fine. But understand, we are the body of Christ. And within this, there is so much freedom. And yet Peter is acting like not only are these Gentiles inferior, but I'm somehow or another better or appear more holy if I keep the Jewish dietary laws. Verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, as I've heard them called, Paul continues, know that a man is not justified by observing the law. That's not what makes you good. That's not what makes you holy because the law cannot justify. It could only condemn. It could show us where we failed but gave us no power to overcome the demands of the law. The law demanded perfection. None of us met the standard. That's why Christ came. The law required perfect obedience but gave no power to do it. Faith in Christ alone justifies. He kept the law perfectly for us. And so who I am today is who I am in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, know that a man is not justified by observing the law. And this is a real slap in the face to, face to all of the Judaizers that are present as well. You guys need some correction. Don't bring your legalism in here. 
Sometimes that happens in a church where the pastor has to grab the bull by the horns. Somebody will come in the back of the church who's not a regular member, and they'll try to disrupt services or say, hey, you guys, you know, you need to adhere to this school of theology over here. Or you guys need to do this to be real good Christians. Or, you know, and sometimes the legalism just needs to be dealt with by the pastoral staff. We've had people back here that were disrupting church services. We've had witches and warlocks and Wiccans and flag wavers and trumpet tutors and everything in between uh, come in the back of the church trying to disrupt. It happened to Costa Mesa when I was on staff there too. Nothing new, new under, the stun, under the sun, but it has to be dealt with. And so Paul continues, so that we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by observing the law, because by observing the law, you want to take note of this, no one will be justified. Well, I'm hoping my good deeds outweigh my bad. That won't get you into heaven. Well, I'm trying to keep the, the commandments. Which ones? The Ten Commandments? Can you even name all ten of them? Then how can you keep that which you do not even know? There's, oh, by the way, over 600 more you got to keep. Do you know what they are? If you got to keep the law, you got to keep the whole law, and that's what James says. If you break the law in just one point, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. The law can't save you. No one will be justified by keeping the law. Verse 17, and here he anticipates a Jewish objection, and he dismantles their argument even before they can open their mouths. For if we are... If we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. It requires that to come to faith in Christ. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I've broken your law. Wash me clean and I'll be as white as snow. If we confess Christ, if we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. So it's kind of a rhetorical question, but it's also a jab at these Judaizers. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. In other words, if I rebuild that lie that my salvation is tied to keeping the law, mm, that'll come back on me. I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. Verse 19, for through the law, I died. I live for God. I've been crucified with Christ. Verse 20, oh my, 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 my. These certain men from James thought they had to hang on to the law because some people think that if we get legalistic, that'll keep you from sin. There's still that thread of thought in the church today that somehow or another if we are harsh and uncharitable and legalistic, if we define what you can and can't do, well, that'll certainly keep you from sin. When I first got saved, there was a church right down the road that some friends of mine went to, and we used to compare notes all the time, what you could and couldn't do as a Christian. Well, we were all brand new Christians. I was 19 years old at the time. And this one guy told me, he said, we don't listen to the radio. And I said, why? He goes, because we're holy. I go to a Pentecostal holiness church, so by not listening to the radio, we're holy. And I said, well, I guess I'm a total wretch then. And he said, yeah, we don't go to movies either. Not even Disney movies? Nope, don't go to any movies at all. Why? Because it makes us more holy. Where do you read that in Scripture? Didn't make sense to me. Well, let's go out for some pizza afterwards. No, we can't eat pizza either. You can't eat pizza. You're not only not saved, you're not even American. <laughs> 
What do you mean you can't eat pizza? That doesn't make you more holy to abstain from these things. That's legalism. You can't listen to cowboy music and be saved. Wayne, didn't you know that? What's music got to do with salvation? Nothing. And yet we lay these layers on. Somehow or another, legalism makes us more holy. It just appeals to our pride. Well, I don't do that. I don't dance or chew or date girls that do. Yeah, you're so stinking holy, huh? My holiness is in Christ. Verse 19, let me just go back over that. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. That's what we do as Christians. We live to please God in everything that we do. And Paul would bring that up in writing to the Corinthian church, the Ephesians, the Colossians, first the Thessalonian believers over and over again. He, there was that admonition, do everything you can to live a life that's pleasing to God. Forget Jewish nonsense. We're not saved by that. It puts us back in bondage and lends itself to pride. Oh, I don't eat Jimmy Dean pork sausage. Well, you may live longer, but that has nothing to do with sin. Verse 20, and if you have a highlighter, you need to use it on this passage. In fact, if you don't have a highlighter, I'm going to give you one next Sunday. But only if you bring it to church every Sunday, because there's stuff that you got to highlight, because if I don't have you highlight it, you will forget it as soon as you get out of Golden Corral. Right after, you won't remember it at all. But if I make you highlight it, that'll draw your attention to it from now on. This is for you. Paul says, this is who I really am. It's not rabbinically trained. No, I'm not a fisherman. May not have been one of the original 12. But here's my identity. I have been crucified. Literally co-crucified with Christ. That's in the passive voice, which means at some point, God saved me. And I died to the law and I became alive to Christ. God did this for me. He is the one who co-crucified me with Christ. And Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ right here, right now, He lives in me. I'm a work in progress. The life I presently live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. It's a participle. He loved me then. He loved me on the cross. He loved me before time began, and He still loves me apart from my performance, good or bad, as a Christian. He loves me. I don't deserve it. It keeps me humble just to remind myself of these biblical truths. But He loves you. He accepts you just as you are. Stop looking to the world for self-validation. Stop looking to social media to help you feel good about yourself. Stop thinking that an education or wealth or possessions is all you need to really make you feel like a man or woman. The life I live, I live by faith, verse 20, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The basis of our relationship with God is Jesus. It is his unmerited grace. God wants us to trust in Christ's righteousness, not our own. Frankly, we have no righteousness. I have none. 
Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can keep all of the Jewish dietary law. You can be as holy as you can try to be, but it is impossible to please God without faith because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He wrote to the Ephesian church in chapter 2 and verse 8, for it is by grace you've been saved. You didn't do anything. You weren't good enough. You didn't keep the law, the Jewish diet. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And even that faith, it's not from yourselves yet. It's the gift of God so that you might be saved. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Ah, I'm saved by grace. I'm kept by grace. Then I must dispense grace. I must be a gracious person. We all fall short, don't we? Make up your mind. You're not going to be anybody's critic. Leave the correction to the pastors. We'll take care of that one. Shepherds over the flock when there is sin that needs to be addressed, we have no problem at all gently and lovingly taking that person in and say, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? How can I help you with this addiction or this chronic problem in your life? Stop trying to hide it. Let's repent of it. Let's be praying for one another. Let's hold each other accountable. That's what Peter is doing. Uh, that's what Paul is doing, excuse me, with Peter, holding him accountable. Peter, you're a Christian. You're a rock. You're free. You know that. So why are you doing what you're doing? That's hypocrisy. Don't do that, Peter. You're a better man than that. God loves you just as you are. With all of your warts and blemishes and weirdnesses, God loves you like nobody else on this planet ever can. Let me ask you this. Did the law ever love you? Nope. Did the law ever sacrifice itself for you? Did the law ever die for you? On the contrary, the law accuses me. It frightens me. It drives me crazy. Someone else saved me from the law, from sin and death to eternal life. And that someone else is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to whom be praise and glory forever. Do you know who first said that? The good Catholic priest, Martin Luther, 500 years ago. He's the one who wrote that. I'm saved by grace. Did the law love me? No. Then I, there's no point in trying to keep the law to be a good Jew so that I can be a, a good Christian. Verse 21, as we close out, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You can't mix grace and legalism. It doesn't mix. It distorts grace and it makes a senseless mockery of the cross of Jesus Christ. But nor should we use the grace of God as an excuse for sloppy Christian living. I want to please God in all that I do. And that means that I will be living a more holy life. I want to please Him. I will abstain from sin. But what I eat doesn't make me unclean. It may make me unhealthy. It does not make me unclean. It's what comes out of my mouth that determines whether I'm clean or not. What comes out of your mouth? Is it love and grace and mercy, the goodness of God, giving Him glory, honor, praise? Is the name Jesus found on your lips regularly throughout the work week? Or are you ashamed of the name? Do you act like a pagan, like Peter acted like a Jew, when in fact he'd been set free from all of that? Act like a Christian. 
enjoy the freedom that you have and do it all by the power of the Holy Spirit. The, his critics had questioned his credentials, and Paul said, oh, I got credentials. I don't play that card often, but I have credentials. I'm called by God. That's my greatest credential. For him, it was all about Jesus. He said in Acts 13, 38, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Everybody who believes in him is justified from everything. You could not be justified from the law of Moses. It's Jesus. He is your righteousness. He said it again in Acts 15, 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. That's how you're saved. It's not by being a goody two-shoes or a religious person or hoping that your good deeds outweigh your bad. The law only condemns us. You're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Does he know you? He loves you. Do you love him? And is that seen best in your actions? It's like the Philippian jailer who in Acts 16 and verse 30 said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, this is it. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in all of your household. Very simple. This is the gospel. It has nothing to do with appearing holy or abstaining from different kinds of music or food or nonsense like that. But the second point I find out of this portion of Acts or uh, Galatians 2 is that bold brothers help other brothers to be better brothers. I, I, I don't know where that came from. I, I, I just seemed like a great way to say what I saw in the passage here. Bold brothers help other brothers to be better brothers. So we come alongside of each other. We just love on each other. You have addictions. You have shortcomings. You have issues. And you don't know where to turn. And your embarrassment and your pride keeps you from turning to anybody for help, pastor or otherwise. It starts with repentance personally because the sin is committed between you and God. But secondly, help another brother or sister to come alongside of you. Brothers with brothers, sisters with sisters. Otherwise, weirdness is going to happen. Catch my drift? You guys start counseling women, you're going to wind up in trouble. Don't do it. You leave that to the godly women of the church. So guys that are struggling, you hunt down a, a brother that you admire and say, help me with my, my issues. Help make me a better brother than I am. There's plenty of great examples in this church. Look for them throughout life. So the issue then is, are, are you open to correction? We can dish it out easy enough, but do you receive it? How do you receive it? Most people just cross their arms and get mad. Better to unfold the arms and repent. Drop the pride. Be open to the correction that you and I both know is necessary. And when it is necessary to come alongside a brother, do it gently, lovingly, kindly, respectfully. Pray with them. Make them know that you're on their side. You're not opposed to them, and you're certainly not better than them. Anything that comes out of your mouth that sounds like spiritual pride, you shouldn't have opened your mouth in the first place. Don't brag on yourself. Don't think you're all that because none of us are. But it brings up that whole final point. Where do you get your sense of self-worth and identity from? Who are you? What, what do people think of you? Is that really important to you? 
What do you do for a living? Your education, your rank, your title, your home, what you drive, is that what defines you? What people think about you? How many likes you have on social media? Galatians 2.20 is who you really are. You've been crucified with Christ. Let me shock you with something. There's no internet in heaven. Did you know that? Did you know that? There are no cell phones in heaven. Did you know that? I mean, some of you are in for a rude awakening because your phone is your life. No, it's not. Christ is your life. Always has been, always will be. I have been crucified with Christ. That means I'm not only dead to the law, but I'm dead to the world. I'm dead to the flesh. I feed the Spirit by being in the Word of God and in prayer and praise and worship and fellowship with the saints. That's what makes me strong. I think the world desperately seeks validation through accomplishment and wealth and titles and possessions, and we see those people on TV all the time. They're looking for some personal validation. Our validation comes from Christ, not the, not the world. We all need food, clothing, and shelter, but some people make that their God. The endless pursuit of such things. And yet the Bible says your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things, food, clothing, and shelter, even before you ask, Jesus said. But here's what you should do. Seek first, as a matter of priority, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All this other stuff, it'll take care of itself. God will make sure of that. But we try to take care of all of the other stuff. All of our other dysfunctional relationships and weirdness and issues and problems and finances. And God says, stop. Stop. You're Martha in the kitchen and you need to learn to be a Mary at my feet. That's the, really the secret to success. You want peace? Then put yourself at the foot of the cross. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The crucified life is obtained by simply picking up your cross daily and denying yourself and following Him. It's really that simple. But make time for Christ. At the start of every day, make time for Jesus. He wants to be your Lord, your God, your Savior. He wants to be everything to you. Why? Because He Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes unto the Father except through me. That's why you want to walk this path with Jesus. He is the path. He is the way, the road. He is the truth, the life. That's your identity. That's who you really are in Christ. So even if you're a Peter, even a Peter needs correction from time to time. Even a pastor needs correction from time to time. And God raised up Paul to come alongside Peter and show him the hypocrisy of what he was doing. I don't think Peter thought it through well. I think he was just given in to the immediate demands of peer pressure. And I think that's where you just need to take a deep breath and say, this is about God. My relationship with God, I don't want to be a man pleaser. I don't want to compromise when the group of pagans is around me. I want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. I want to stand strong these last days. I don't want to be squishy when the legalists are around. I don't want to go out of my way to placate them because legalism, it only kills off my love and joy and peace and patience. I don't want to do that. I'm free in Christ Jesus, not free to sin, free to serve. Free to do His will and work these last days. Well, let's stand together and close in prayer. And praise band, come on up. Heavenly Father, there is not a one of us that doesn't need the correction 
of a Peter sometimes, and I pray that you'd put a Paul in our lives to bring that to our attention, that you would knock down any walls of pride and self-sufficiency, that we would not cower down in fear to peer pressure. We wouldn't walk in any fear of anything in this life, but we would fear him who is able to judge and to cast the soul into heaven or hell. We stand in awe of you, not phobia kind of fear. We love, honor, and reverence you and want to do all that was within us to please you, Lord.